before he changes his mind. But I was grateful. I'm not downing that either. You know, we see in Acts chapter 2, when Paul was preaching under the uh, influence or anointing of the Holy Spirit, we see that the people that were hearing Paul's message were pierced to their hearts. And immediately they said, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, excuse me. Yeah, a little heresy. No, Peter was preaching. Sorry, it's Peter. Persuasively, and immediately the Bible says that their hearts, those who were listening, their hearts were pierced. And they were saying, what do we do? What do we do to be saved? And Peter said immediately, he said, repent and baptize yourself in the name of Jesus. And immediately they just started opening up, I don't know, the Jordan, I don't know what place it was, and they just started... So there's significance to it. But I'm grateful that there was a two-year kind of stent that I had. Uh, What do they call it? Gap years? Or gap... Yeah, is that what the college students call it? Gap seasons? What is it? Somebody help me out. Gap year. year. Christina, why are you looking at me like i got ten heads? It's a real thing, right? (laughs) Just because you haven't done it, don't knock it. But anyways, I had this gap year... Between salvation and baptism. I was grateful. Why? Because it tested the authenticity of my choice to follow Christ. There was a two-year stint where I was, you know, tested to see just how real my decision was to follow Christ. You know, growing up, I was a rebellious young man. I, I, I probably, although my parents wouldn't admit to it now, Uh, I probably drove them or added years onto their lives or nearly drove them to the grave because of my rebellion. And there was uh, an older man uh, by the name of Carmen. Who's familiar with Carmen? Oh, come on. That's it? Come on. Some of you 30-something, 40-something. Don't be putting your hand down. You know who Carmen is. Come on. How many know who Carmen is? The only hope. For America is Jesus. Anyways, um, my mother would always have hope when Carmen came to town. Because the man, as corny as he was, he had a spirit of evangelism on him that every time you attended his conferences or his concerts, you just wanted to go to the altar. You're just like, I don't know what it is, I'm going to that altar. Unfortunately, every time Carmen came to town, I went to the altar. Uh, unfortunately, also, the, the decision never lasts after the conference or after the concert. And so it's a good thing to allow some, some gap, a gap season, a gap year if you would. I'm not saying it happens in every case, but don't be nervous. Don't let your friends get you all concerned because you haven't been baptized. Because I realize there's a couple of us here today um, that will be baptized for the first time. That excites me. That excites me to know that there are actually a couple of people here that are going to make the choice to be submersed in water. I love that. I know, that's funny, right? But we'll get to the significance. Um, And so that excites me. Why? Because Matthew 28, Jesus charges us what? To go into all nations and what? Make disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we're actually, we don't necessarily even have to go into the nations. We have, if you, if you're, if you are standing at my vantage point, I see the nations right before my eyes. It's awesome. The nations just come to Boston and, and Cambridge. I love it. And, uh, and so we don't even have to actually go. We have them right at our, our doorstep, and that's extremely excited. I just thought I'd share that. So it's in the content of baptism, meaning the significance of baptism that kind of charges me today, as now I took the time to study it. 
and again, it's not that people, our pastors that were involved in my life, didn't try to give me some biblical, um, biblical foundation or a biblical foundation of the significance of baptism, what it all means. They surely did. I just didn't care. I love Jesus, and that seemed like enough. And um, unfortunately, I got baptized in October in New England. I don't get it. In a freezing pool. In a freezing pool. I'm telling you. Uh, it was freezing. But the, it, 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 I understood the heart behind it because the weather was still kind of warm. So I guess the, the deacons and the pastor thought, well, the weather's warm. Certainly the pool must be warm. It wasn't, and I just couldn't wait to get out. But one thing I was sure of when I was baptized at the age of 20, that this time the decision I made to follow Christ was sure. It was a sure thing. I was locked in for the long haul. Although I didn't have the biblical understanding and the significance of baptism, I had the yes in my heart this time. It wasn't just a Carmen concert type of experience. It was a real, authentic decision to count the cost and follow Christ. And so for those who are going to be baptized for the first time, allow the season to kind of play out. Those interim years are great to kind of challenge and test the authenticity of our decision and our choice. Jesus said in himself, he's like, listen, um, you know, does a man go to build a building? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm, I'm, I don't want to twist the scripture, but he says, go into it. Go to fight a war without plans, without counting the cost of what he's doing. No, and so should it be in us. We should consider the cost of what we're about to pray when we when pay when we say yes to Jesus and following him. So if you would, that was my introduction. Uh, we're going to get right into the scripture. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 6? We're going to read 10 verses. I'm going to kind of bounce around uh, in the Bible today. Um, so bear with me. And we feel like it's going to take about two or three weeks to kind of cover the vast landscape of baptism biblically. I think, because there's not just water baptism, there's also the bat, being baptized in the Holy Spirit that Jesus referenced. And so we're going to try to dedicate three Sundays to really just getting into the scriptures, finding out what it means, why we do it. Um, and, and then we are going to get a horse trough. Yep, I said it. Something that horses eat and drink from. It's kind of popular in uh, the portable church. Yeah, it's a horse trough. It's made of steel, I think. And we're going to put it right here. We're going to fill it up with warm water. You won't be like me in October out in the frigid pool. You'll actually be in warm water. We're going to put it right here. We're going to dunk you in water. It's going to be a great time. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Is everybody having a good time? Yeah. Right. Nothing like coming to church and not having a good time. Nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> Miriam, how you doing? Good, good. It's good to see you. Okay, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Romans. Paul starts off, he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when, we were, that when we were joined with Christ, Jesus, in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Verse 5. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to new life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. 
For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Paul just keeps on going over that simple truth right there. I mean, it's, it's, you, can, you can't help but notice that he is driving the, the, the stake. And he is making it clear that we died with Christ in baptism. And what we died to is the power of sin in our lives. Now, we'll get, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But verse 8. And since we have died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, he died once to again, what? Break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So Paul starts off in verse 1 and what does he do? He asks these people a question. He says, hey fellas, you know, should we continue to live immoral, unrighteous lives so that God can show us some of his wonderful grace. Now you've got to understand, in this context, Paul is not just merely addressing people of that mindset, but he's addressing also people who for years were trying to obey the law to its letter and attempt to please and find favor with God. Essentially, these people that Paul was talking to were people that followed strictly still under the new covenant, the law of Moses, the the Torah. And so Paul is kind of encouraging them that, listen, there is still a moral code here, friends, if you would. There is still, there is like, it's like Jesus, they said about, Jesus said about himself that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And so Paul, in the same manner, is saying, listen, don't be concerned, friend. There is still a moral code here. There is still a law, if you would. There are still principles of righteousness that we should obtain, that we should go after. So let's not continue in sin. Let's not be foolish. Let's not be fooled. Let's not be foolish. Excuse me. And so it's important that we understand that Paul was just not talking to sinners. He was not just talking to people who were abusing the grace of God. He was talking to people who have not yet understood or kind of grasped the new covenant concept of grace. Is that understandable? Well, we'll think so. So Paul starts off by asking a question. It's so good that he follows up immediately and he says, of course not. No, of course not. Grace is not a license to live lawless lives or unrighteous lives. But it enables us to live righteously. And so Paul goes on in verse 2 and he answers the why. Why? Because he says simply this, once something is dead, it's dead. What is dead here in Paul's language? What's dead is the power of sin. And he's saying, listen, how can you as a believer... Now, this is so contrary to even our thinking in this room. I mean, it's so contrary to even my thinking. I'm like, listen, I don't know what Paul is talking about, but I still feel like there's a little bit of my old man hanging around. Am I alone? I I, I just, I sometimes feel as if I don't really understand the the meaning and its total uh, fulfillment of what God did for us through the cross. Because most of us today, we think of the cross and we, we just think of it as a get out of hell free card. And that's awesome. I love that. I'm, I'm so glad that I got that card. I'm so glad that Jesus paid the price, that he 
paid what I should have paid. I'm so grateful. But Paul right here in Romans chapter 6 is going to lay out something different that the cross did for us. And it's important that we just don't treat the cross as just a get-out-of-hell-free card. So Paul says, listen, once something is dead, it's dead. Don't try to, re, you know, resuscitate it. Don't try to put the defibrillators. Please, although it sometimes feels like, and, and why there is such a kind of, I, I don't know if it's the right word, but a recoil or kind of like a, what does he mean by that? Because it's so contrary to most of us, if not all of our nature. Because for the most part, we feel like that old nature, that old fallen Adam is still about, still creeping. Am I, we, some of us got some skeletons in our closet. I'm there with you. So what makes this possible? In case you were looking at your news feed or your Twitter uh, or to see how many hits you had on your selfie. Um, Paul, let's read verse 3. Yeah, Christine is looking all guilty over there. She definitely was doing it. Let's read verse 3 again. Just in case you missed it. What makes this possible? What actually, according to Paul, makes this possible? Paul says it. Simple. Verse 3. He says, Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? So one of the significant... Sorry, I get my... It shouldn't go to screensaver, but I need my notes. Awkward moment brought to you by... One second. Okay. So what makes it possible, according to Paul? Baptism makes it possible. Why? Because according to Paul, he says, listen, you joined Christ. Or in other words, you were united with Christ in his death. In what died in you when you were immersed in water was the power of sin to dictate and to rule in our lives. Let's read it again, just in case. Verse 3, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? We joined and were united with Christ in his death through baptism. And of course, this death was a supernatural one. I don't need some of you guys coming to me afterwards and saying, so let me get this right. When you baptize me, I'm going to die. <laughs> Listen, you may think that that is weird for me to even say that. But you would be surprised if you were in my shoes. <laughs> what sometimes is filtered through what we say up here, what, what kind of our minds come up with as we preach. And so, no, we are not talking in any way about holding you underwater. Guys, <laughs> oh, you're going to die. Okay, some of you are scared. Uh, but we're not talking about that. This thing, this death and resurrection, may I add, is nothing merely than a supernatural exchange. Let me summarize quickly what Paul is saying in these verses. Layman's term, simplest form if I can. Those who believe and who follow Jesus Christ have through baptism joined themselves to Christ. In his death. In other words, our old 
nature, our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ through baptism. Why that sin may lose its power in our lives. That we no longer have to live by its dictates or try to fulfill what it demands of us. Have you ever, listen, sin is a powerful thing. And sometimes, I'll just be honest, the gravity or the pulling to fulfill the lust of the flesh is much, much more stronger than sometimes trying to live holy or trying to, to uh, obtain righteousness. Sin is a powerful, powerful force, excuse me. But we are so fortunate that what Jesus did in his death on the cross liberated us as slaves. Liberated us. It, it actually gave us the potential to not try to live by a moral code like in the Old Testament, but it gave us the ability to be freed by the grace of God. To not have to labor under the heavy weight of sin that brings death. We join Christ. How do we join Him? Yes, friend, when you were submerged in water, you joined Christ. Now, for most of us, we can't even connect with that because we think that act is so foolish. Like, how, how can you say to me, I mean, I remember being baptized. I'm like, really? Uh, so I'm going to be dunked in water, freezing water, and you, and I mean, God is going to set me free from the power of sin. But much like communion is um, a bit weird, like, you think about it. No, hear me out here. Hear me out here. I mean, we've been told that when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, that we're eating of the Lord's flesh and we're drinking of his blood. That's weird. But yet when we start to understand the biblical significance and power of what these foolish things actually mean, man, they have such a great, great effect, excuse me, in our lives, don't they? I, I now studying baptism, I want to be baptized. I, I, I realized that because of my ignorance, scripturally, I was cheated. But now that I have the understanding in the conviction that when I am submerged, something takes place that is supernatural. God does something an exchange where my old man that I inherited, inherited from Adam dies. And not only do I die, but then as I am coming out of that water, I'm stepping into a new Daryl. I've been promised new life. See, it's not just about the death. It's also about what's on the flip side after you come up from the water. And what Paul says what he promises us is that, yes, you die. Yes, your sinful nature dies through the simple, foolish act of being dunked in water. But when you come out, you come out a new person, a new creation. You've been given a new name, a new life. What? Who doesn't want to do that? Sign me up. And I believe that once we have a correct biblical understanding of baptism, all the more excitement and joy comes out of that 
experience where it's just not, oh, we're going to get in the cold water. <laughs> yeah. There's something that is powerful when we understand the scripture. Am I making sense here? Okay. I don't know. Some of, uh, some of you I'm concerned, but all right. Just joking. I'm not concerned. I love you all. Romans chapter 6 again, verse 7. Paul seems to drive this point home in verse 7 when he explains what we died to. And this is simple. Look at this. Paul just says, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of Christ. Now, we don't need to get into the explanation of what we just explained. When did we die? When you were dunked. <laughs> I know. You know, I think sometimes we're just getting ready for some euphoric experience, like this, this like epic thing that happens, you know, where we can get delivered or free from sin. But sometimes it's just simply obeying the principle or actions of baptism where we don't have to wait for some, the clouds to be open. This is my son of who I'm well pleased. But if we can have the correct biblical understanding, then we can also, I believe, experience the power and the exchange of what happens through baptism. Paul says, for when we died, we were set free from the power of sin. Paul, in previous chapters, which we've already covered, I won't even go into it, talks about this death and how it took place. It took place in baptism as simply as that, as simple as that. Our old nature was put to death when we were baptized. We have to understand that this death and new life that takes place in baptism is a supernatural one. And we already covered much like communion. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, if we could. Paul, in the same way, but different language says the same thing. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We're going to read to verse 12. Is everybody all right? I feel a lot, like there's a lot of pages turning. That's good. How many are, how many are sporting? Like, uh, all right, we're not hating those who have iPads. Don't start to hide them. I mean, it's okay. We love it. We love it. But ah, the paper. Just something about flipping through the pages. You, know, oh, yeah. you feel more holy or something. It's just, oh, the text. Just joking, guys. Listen, I mean, come on. It's just a joke. <laughs> How you doing, Christian? Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. Verse 10. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head of every authority. Verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised. Listen to this language here. But not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. Cutting away, or the cutting away, of your sinful nature. I feel boomy. It's okay. The cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted in the power that raised Christ from the dead. 
Again, there's different language that Paul seems to be using here. But it's the same heart. It's the same explanation. And what I like that Paul points out in regards to the circumcision is he says, listen, this was not a physical procedure. But this is a spiritual circumcision that happens. This is something spiritual of which you have to be careful because sometimes when it comes to baptism, communion, and some of these practices that we do, we can get in here. We can get in here and and totally forsake or disregard the spiritual implications or the supernatural force that's at work. Let's look quickly or summarize two things that I think we can take away from these two um, chapters. One is in baptism, again, we joined Christ in his death, in resurrection. Our old man is crucified with Christ. And we were raised to new life in Christ, freed from the power of sin in death by the grace of God. Number two, baptism is a supernatural spiritual work. In other words, our human intellect can't fully grasp the spiritual work of God or the spiritual work that God does in baptism. What sometimes again feels meaningless or a bit foolish or a bit absurd has so much meaning and value in the purposes of God for our lives as individuals. Turn with me to John again, uh, John chapter 3. And I want to try to drive this whole kind of getting in here when we think about these different terms of communion and baptism Because we see right here in John chapter 3, we see a man named Nicodemus who also was caught in his head when he talked to Jesus. And I know, let's just go to the text so I don't butcher it. In verse 1, it says that there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. The miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Listen to Jesus' reply. Just just listen to it, because this this is weird to me. This is weird to me. He says this to Nicodemus after Nicodemus just says that, hey, pretty much, dude, we we acknowledge, it's obvious that you're, like, not human. You are superhuman, (laughs) whatever. You're doing things of which we can't do, uh, and, 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 and it's obvious that you have favor with God. Listen to Jesus' reply. This is what Jesus' reply was in verse 3. I tell you the truth. (laughs) Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What? I mean, are you, that's a fine how do you do, huh? Well, you know, you know, Jesus, we observe and it's obvious that you are um, someone who is sent by God given your profound teachings and the uh, marvelous signs, wonders, and miracles you perform. And, and simply, Jesus backs up and he says, listen, just by acknowledging who I am as powerful and as uh, a man who operates in signs and wonders isn't going to get you into heaven, Nicodemus. You understand, Nicodemus, this altercation happened at night. Now, let's just read some facts about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. 
This council followed strictly the words within the Torah, the law of Moses, kind of like the people that uh, Paul was addressing in Romans chapter 6. As well as their own passed down oral traditions, they were uh, setting themselves apart, uh, opposing cultural influences of their day to try to live uh, uh, God's law with purity. The Pharisees were made up of scholars, laymen, and scribes, and were highly regarded by the Jewish community. Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, an elite honor in itself, he was a member of the great, of the great excuse me, Sanhedrin. Uh, this would be similar uh, to a prominent religious leader who also maybe is a United States senator. I mean, this guy not only has clout, you know, knows the law of Moses, but, you know, he knows some heavy hitters in government. You know, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm tired. But, you know, the thing about it is Nicodemus decides to meet with Jesus at night, kind of like, you know, I can't let anybody see that I'm, I'm, I'm kibitzing with this guy. In, in Jesus' response to Nicodemus' observation was this. Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, what you're seeing with your eyes that speaks of my power and my works are not going to get you into heaven, Nicodemus. You must be born again. See, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus as a powerful force, if you would. It's another thing in Jesus' time to acknowledge his divinity. <laughs> and at this point, Nicodemus most likely does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is speaking right into that. He knows. Does that make sense? So Nicodemus gets some time alone with Jesus. He points out the obvious. Verse 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus' reply. Um, and, and, and in and of, of itself, the probability, if you would, of some religious governmental leader talking to Jesus was entirely uncommon. Like these guys, they stayed away from Jesus like the, he had a plague, like he had Ebola. Okay, that wasn't, you know, Christian jokes gone wild. It's, uh, we're working on it. We're trying to re redevise. Anyways. <laughs> Let's go on in verse 6, because this is what I'm talking. <laughs> All right, sorry. So, so, sorry. <laughs> Let's get into the main point here in verse 6. Listen as Jesus goes further into his, well, actually, let's stop at verse 4. Let's, let's look at verse 4, because that's where Nicodemus replies to Jesus' remarks about being born again. He says this, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Again, Nicodemus is trying to rationalize this in his thinking. And, and for me, given the time in history, I can see why. I'd probably say the same thing. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm going to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born. It's weird, Jesus. What are you talking about? Again, it just alludes to our, um, it, it further concludes in my thinking that this, this work of being born again, this work of baptism is a supernatural one. And you can't begin to explain it naturally with your thinking. And that's exactly what Nicodemus is trying to do. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. And of course, Jesus thinks this is ridiculous. Why? Because Nicodemus knows the Old Testament. Probably 
much more than his predecessors or other Pharisees and Sadducees of his day. He's a very prominent, elite man. He knows the Torah. And so Jesus is kind of like, listen, no, let's go to verse 5. Let's look at Jesus' reply. And he kind of talks in some language that is hard to understand, and it should be that way. <laughs> it should be that way. You know, we often try to just make this silly sense of text sometimes, just so that we can feel comfortable. Jesus left it messy here with Nicodemus. He left it messy. He's like, wrap your mind around this thinking. You know, you want to try to hedge me in and try to, you know, talk about crawling back in your mother's womb? Let's just go, let's go someplace, oh, elite studier of the word. <laughs> Jesus replied, I assure you that no one, he again says, can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, some scholars believe that that's talking about baptism. Others don't. I'm not going to explain it. I'm not a scholar. Look to commentaries. Figure it out. <laughs> I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, listen to Jesus here. He goes, he says, humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Are you kidding me? So in other words, I know some of you are confused. Don't be confused. Simply, Nicodemus is trying to keep it here. He's just trying, I'm, I'm trying to understand you, Jesus, here. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't understand me. That's the whole problem with you religious people. You think here. And there needs to be more thinking here in your spirit. Because this can only go so far. Jesus says, this human life can only reproduce. Let me look again. Reproduce human life. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay, I get it. I get it. You can laugh at me. <laughs> We're having a good time. Do you understand? Nicodemus, again, he's trying to keep it here. And rightly so, guys. Listen, in this time in history, I would be right there too. I'd be like, Jesus, what are you, get a little hotter. What are you talking about? You know, I just said you're the man pretty much. I just said you're pretty, and you come at me with this born-again jargon? I mean, how do we do that? And so Jesus in verse 7 goes on to say this. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. And then he goes on to say something that's profound in my eyes. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Now, again, was Jesus clueless about what he was talking about? No. And why do I say that? Let's look at verse 11 and 12. 11 and 12, just jump forward and maybe we'll go back. But Jesus talks again. Actually, let's start at verse 10. Jesus replied again, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? And then here, verse 11, he tells Nicodemus why he's not going to give him this meaning of what it means to be born again. Let's look. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you don't believe our testimony. Let me, let me say that again, because I know some of you didn't get it. He goes, I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, 
and yet you won't believe our testimony. And there he drives the nail home. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? Was it the, was it the fact that Jesus was clueless about what he was talking about? Absolutely not. Jesus knew thoroughly what he was talking about and could probably practically explain it in a way that Nicodemus' mind could have gotten it. But he chose not to. For whatever reason, he chose not to. And many times when it comes to these practices, we don't have to understand logically or intellectually. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We should. But... Our logic should come from the Word of God. And then after simulating, is that the right word? Assimilating, thank you, Will. He's like a thesaurus dictionary right here in the first row. It's good to have. After looking over the Word, it needs to go from observation to our spirit man. How do we apply it? See, see not all this language in this text can be figured out here, friend. And, and baptism is one of those things that aren't necessarily just figured out here. I mean, we can get a great springboard, right? From Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2 and many other texts. We can get a great starting place. But what we must understand, friend, when you get baptized in two to three weeks, you are going to die, not physically, praise God, I don't want to go to jail. But you are going to die to the power of sin in your lives. Now let me clean up a little bit here. Your choice, what to do after baptism, simply falls on your own head. Jesus, our God, I should say, from the beginning of time, gave us a free will. And he will not go against that nor challenge that just because you were dunked in water. You will be able to live out the way you want your Christian faith the rest of your life. Or you can hear the words. Get the words in your spirit. What are the words that should be gotten? Are bought? What are the words that should get in your spirit? That when I'm submersed, as foolish as it might seem, as weird as it might be, and look, I am going to die. I am going to unite myself to Christ and his death. And the death that I am going to die is to the power of sin in my life. It's 5.48. We have next Sunday to go further into the text. A lot of us try to just fill a bunch of jargon and words into one Sunday. It's just useless. So what I want to do here is I would like for us to go to the Word of God. Start with Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 12. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Don't take my word for it. You look. If you're thinking about being baptized, if you're thinking about being baptized again, you look at the scripture and you come to a conclusion on what it means 
to be baptized. Don't take my word for it. Weigh my words against this word. I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm not perfect. And I'm certainly not a perfect interpreter of the script, scripture. Interpreter of the scripture. I don't, whatever. I barely know the English language. No. Um, <laughs> listen, all I got to say is, listen, all I got to say is, listen, I, I came here at two. I loaded up a trailer. From there, I came here. I set up the equipment. I set up the equipment. See, I can't even pronounce words right. I set up the equipment. I led about an hour of worship. And then I simply, from that point, sweat pouring out of my body, because I just don't worship the Lord silently or, or passively. You know, a lot goes into it, <laughs> as you can tell. Um, but then I have to put on the preacher hat. It's a lot. So bear with me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can clap. Yeah, that's great. Woo! <laughs> but anyways... You look, you look at the words and you come to some conclusions. Listen, let's bow our heads. I want to give an invitation today. If there's anyone here who has...